Welcome to the Westside Personalized Podcast, where real educators share their classroom-tested, learner-approved personalization practices. I'm your host, Andrew Easton. I hope you enjoyed today's discussion and are able to find a few valuable takeaways from the podcast. And so without further ado, let's go to the pod! All right, back for another episode of the Westside Personalized Podcast, and um, this one's coming to you live from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where I'm at the Institute for Personalized Learning's ninth annual convening, and so I'm really excited uh, for the opportunity to be up here. Actually, the conference just concluded, uh, and so had an opportunity over the last day and a half to learn a lot about personalized learning kind of within Wisconsin, but also the region, and pick up a lot of just tips and tricks and strategies from so many great educators that were part of that experience. And got to catch up, actually, with a good friend of mine, Kate Somerville, who works with the Institute for Personalized Learning and is someone that I actually met for the first time two years ago uh, whenever I was here for the seventh personalized learning convening. And ever since then, I've uh, appreciated kind of our continued dialogue and opportunity to, uh, you know, just kind of grow in this work and, and to grow this work together. So, Kate, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Excited to have you uh, here to share a little bit. And so for people that maybe don't know you and kind of your story really with personalized learning, uh, how did you get kind of started with all this work and where did that first kind of find you and where's it gone from there? So as Andrew said, I'm Kate Somerville. My current role is with the Institute for Personalized Learning as a professional development specialist. But prior to that, I was a classroom teacher in the Elmbrook School District, which is a suburb outside of Milwaukee, actually in Waukesha County, which is just west of downtown Milwaukee. I taught in that district for about 17 years. Most of my experience was at the fourth and fifth grade level. And I would say for the first 13 years of my teaching experience, I taught in an extremely traditional legacy model classroom. Um, You're very typical 25 to 30 students in desks, in rows. And after about my 13th year, we had an sort of maybe overhaul would be the word in senior leadership at the district level. When our new administrators came in, a superintendent, assistant superintendent, with them they brought this idea around innovation and really organically growing the work of innovation from the teacher's perspective. Yeah, um, they that did, sounds very familiar because that's kind of what happened at Westside as yes. well. We got a new admin that came in, district leadership, yeah. and they that was it. It was around innovation uh, and around grassroots movement. Yep. And so, and it was all around in what ways would you like to innovate? And they didn't have this preset conceived notion around what they wanted. Mm -hmm. They really just wanted it to be owned by us as classroom teachers. So at that time, I participated in what they coined as the uncommittee and really looked for ways to bring change into my space. Um, I partnered at that time with a woman named Angela Patterson, who um, is a near and dear friend of mine and my work wife, and she and I uh, then partnered with the Institute themselves. Mm -hmm. So that was the first time I had ever heard the phrase personalized learning. Honestly, when we started the journey, we didn't go into the work thinking we're going to implement personalized learning or learner-centered practice. We just really wanted an opportunity to create a culture within our classroom that really was grounded in a learner voice, mm-hmm. in community, in helping them realize that they are a resource uh, and that we are no longer in this society, in this world, in our classroom, the bearer of all knowledge. Amen. And, right? <laughs> True. Um, now, we still are a resource. For we sure. Are knowledgeable. For sure. And should be sought out as For such. sure. 
but not the only one. For sure. And yeah. when and when I have students in my classroom that were probably stronger math students than me in certain areas and aspects, like I I applauded that and I mm -hmm. loved it. And so we partnered with the Institute, and that was the first time I had ever heard of the Institute for Personalized Learning. We have what is called our Institute Studies Cohort, mm -hmm. which is a group of educators that come together, typically a team of teachers that are really sort of diving into the work of personalized learning. Uh, we're introduced to the Honeycomb Model, which is our sort of change strategy for transforming um, environments, whether that be at the district level, classroom level, building level. And can I ask real quick too, sure that thing. stuff you can find on your website. Absolutely. Institute4pl.org okay. is our website. And we'll put it in the show notes. And absolutely. And within there, we have what is called our interactive honeycomb model, uh, which allows you the ability to click on a cell and learn more about that element. And then what that element sort of looks like from a very traditional legacy model to a personalized learning model. And so that was the first time I was I saw the honeycomb model, and it was extremely overwhelming. Um, I, I would I, kind of agree. Right? Bit. I said yeah. that this morning. I, I, I should know there's probably 36 elements on the honeycomb model, and we're continuously iterating, primarily because of the work that's happening in districts um, near and far. And so as a classroom teacher, that was the first time I ever heard that phrase and sort of jumped into this work. But I, like I said, I was really overwhelmed because there's a lot on there. And I really had this mentality that I had to do it all to be successful. Right. And so we, I guess my journey started with Angela and I coming together. We taught 52 kids in one big classroom. We had this team approach together. Everyone achieves more. Our classroom was called team togetherness. And we dove into the work really having no idea what we were doing. And it was, there were moments that it was really amazing. And there were moments that we struggled. Sure. Um, but we really tried to show our students that we believed in this failing forward mentality and that we needed them to watch us struggle because we were going to put them in a position where they were going to be asked to struggle yeah. and they were going to be asked to play school very differently. That sort of hits my brain, I guess, in a couple of different capacities of what we sort of talk about within our own district, too, and that I like to think of that kind of voice and choice piece as almost being a reciprocity cycle that mm -hmm. starts with having a great classroom culture. And so if you have a solid classroom culture and rapport, then when you start to extend choices to students, they feel comfortable at least figuring that out mm -hmm. and going with the fact that we are going to do something different from the traditional legacy model. And then they, they get into those choices and they start to give feedback and pushback and conversations and you start to get into that stage two kind of personalized learning environment according to like Bray McClassy's work where now we're leaving differentiation, we're getting into that collaborative mm -hmm. kind of work. And then when you listen to them and you make adjustments and you modify things, and they see that you've done that, now it kind of goes full circle and your classroom culture is so much better because they go, oh, like failing forward is okay in here because you're modeling it. Mm -hmm. And you know what, when I say something to my teacher, my teacher listens, hears, and responds, and so I'm gonna keep talking. Right. <laughs> and it just sort of spirals up from there um, in, in kind of the growth of the practice, I think. But it is incremental through iterations, you know, as you were kind of talking about. And uh, so that's encouraging to hear that. And the other piece I was gonna say very quickly too is that I think that you have to have the conversation with your class, particularly in a district where it's not common practice yet to say, here's what we're doing. It is called personalized learning. Here's the values and the reasons why we're doing mm -hmm. this. We're going, we are going to struggle, and that's okay, and really just be open about some of those pieces. And the students will be forgiving if they know that there's a reason behind it. For um, sure. And, yeah, all that stuff. I think, too, um, that common language around what we mean by having choice, that it's not a free-for-all. Sure. You know, and that that was a huge learning curve for our students 
I think that kids had an expectation of what they were going to have when they walked mm-hmm. into our fourth grade classroom and what they experienced was very, very different. They were expecting to sort of sit and get. And so oftentimes when we would ask them for voice or we would ask them to make choices or we gave them autonomy over how they were showing, demonstrating learning, they didn't know how to do that. Sure. You know, even something as simple as taking a pre-assessment. I would get a lot of, uh, put my name on the top of the paper and write IDK, which stood for I don't know. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you don't know any of this? Like, let's. And so we went through this process of sort of teaching them, you know, developing within them the capacity to learn and, yeah. and how, how to do that because they've been playing a game for a long, long time. Well, and I'll piggyback off that too and say I had pushback from some of my more like kind of honors level type yes. students. Yes. Because they're give so me the good at the game. They can destroy <laughs> right, the game. Right, And so now that you're, you've changed the rules, like how dare right. you, please go back to this other one. And I don't like personalized learning. Well, and also because you have so much more, you have more ownership, which means you have more responsibility. Right. And that's uh, something that they have to accept. And right. We had, we had conversations around the word autonomy. And what that means. What does it mean to develop agency? What does it mean to have autonomy? And I would sometimes tease learners the same way I tease myself as an educator that sometimes as a teacher I wanted autonomy until I had autonomy and then I'm like whoa I don't want so much autonomy you know like wait a minute hold on a second you know that's a lot you know and so we you have to kind of balance you know the other thing that we talked with our kids a lot about and we talk about it at the institute is this whole idea from you know moving from educator driven to learner driven and I think that sometimes when we see that double arrow let's just say we have a double arrow I'm talking with my hands now um, (laughs) with educator driven being on one side and learner driven being on the other side that we think that we have to get all the way to the very very tip of that world learner driven Mm -hmm. and that's when we're that's when we've arrived that's when we've are finally learner centered and and that's when we're personalizing but the whole idea is that we're sort of continuously bouncing back and forth. Um, I joke sometimes when I talk with groups around the idea that direct instruction isn't a four-letter word. It's not a swear word in the world of learner-centered practice. Every student needs direct instruction at some point. You had mentioned earlier, you know, we are a resource. We are knowledgeable. Mm -hmm. But that every student doesn't need that instruction at every minute of every day at the expense of what they are already coming to the table with. So um, that's sort of my background. I left the classroom. Angela and I taught together for four years. Uh, We started with our kids in fourth grade. We looped with them to fifth grade, and then we'd ship them off to the middle school. And then we'd jump back down to fourth grade and keep our kids for that two-year cycle. So we looped with them. Uh, So we did that. We had two cohorts of students, about um, 50 students each cohort, ranging anywhere from very high-achieving to uh, level one ELL students that spoke little to no English, to students with a variety of special needs, special ed students, whether that be autism or um, cognitive disabilities. And so we really had a, a wide range of learners in our classroom. Honestly, by the end of our fourth year, I think both of us were looking for an opportunity to grow professionally. Yeah. Angela had her uh, principalship license and was ready to sort of move into that administrative role. I was really looking for instructional coaching positions at the time. And so, and for me, you know, being an instructional coach was something that I I knew I was always very passionate about because I love 
working alongside teachers and sort yeah. of helping guide them. Sometimes instructional coaches, that's not necessarily what they always do in a district. And so I, I needed to find a good fit for me. At that same time, ironically, there was an opening for a professional development specialist at the Institute, which for me was sort of coming full circle because that was where my lifeline for education really took a huge leap was when I learned more about learner-centered practice and I learned more about the honeycomb. So, so to be able to come back and now push this work out and support this work with classroom teachers has been really rewarding for me and really fun, honestly. Uh, I feel like that sort of mirrors my own my own story a little bit. I, I don't share sometimes that there came a point in my third year of teaching where I knew I had to change up what I was doing um, right. because we had, I had inherited a packet and a novel that nobody was interested in and I had seniors as they were about to leave. <laughs> yeah. It's true. Uh, and I, I was like, well, at the time differentiation was a buzzword and so I was like, well, if I can differentiate and then give students control pace at the same time, that would be kind of a cool thing. Right. And through dumb luck, there was a counseling error and they put too many students in all my sections. So I had four or five students more than I should have had. And so I, I had the smallest classroom in the building and people sitting on the floor the first day of this thing I had spent forever trying to build, right? Like, like making a quarter's worth of content ready ahead of time so you could go through your own pace. Uh, and so I was venting to our media center specialist, and she said to me, well, uh, why don't you just bring them down here? Right. The and most so, underutilized space in the entire <laughs> school is the media she center. She said that too, Right? Honestly. It's so true, yeah. and they're usually beautiful and yeah. stocked with a ton of resources. Mm-hmm. So I checked out the library as to how, how I like to award that sometimes, and then really through failing forward, you know, a quarter at a time, I was like, oh, you probably need a goal-setting sheet, and oh, you should probably reflect on this, and some people like to work here and in this context. And so it's just really interesting that I went to Westside, and my second year at Westside, well, first of all, I went from 80-minute class periods to 35-minute class periods. 35 minutes? That was a big What can you do in 35 shift. minutes? I can't even sneeze in 35 oh, minutes. No, I, oh, I totally agree. I just <laughs> felt like I kept being just like pulled along that whole first year. And it wasn't until uh, I kind of shifted to more personalized practices that I got to know my students a little bit more yeah. because everything, as the students kind of articulate, they love coming to class and knowing what they were going to do that day versus waiting for you to throw the objective on the board and tell them like what today was about. And so, I mean, when you can have that immediate start, mm-hmm. we really maximize that 35 minutes. But uh, yeah, so then after three, four years with that, sorry to finally get to my point after a long story. That's all right. It's the story uh, of my life. <laughs> mine too. Right? I, I know. We're it. long-winded. That's how we get along. <laughs> but, it, uh, but it was great then to... to get to a place where you just love it so much and understand the work and see the benefits that students are pulling from that. And then to be able to talk with teachers about that and and grow that across a district or for you, uh, a region Mm -hmm. or the country, uh, it's just super, super rewarding and something worth waking up and, and pursuing and getting after every day. For sure. I think a lot of it, especially the work of the Institute, but then also the work that you're doing, like for a long time, we spend all this time on the why, like why this is important and Mm -hmm. why this is needed. And and the why message, of course, is crucial. But as classroom teachers, we want the how. Yeah. We want the how, like how in the world am I doing this? And how is this manageable? And, you know, even the prior two prior conversations we were having with the gentleman sitting at this table, it was around that how. Sure. And sometimes, you know, for Angela and I, when we were in the classroom, we were ready to jump into the why, wanted to jump into the how. But we needed to backpedal, I would say, by about November or December of our first year to reestablish our why. Because we just felt like people are going to be questioning things. And if we can't articulate why we're doing this, it's it's doesn't matter you know what we do or how we do it, we needed to be able to bring that to light. And I mm-hmm. think that, you know, people that have a vision, the people flock to that. 
Yeah. You know, the people want somebody that you can trust and that the, your vision aligns and that, you know, you're loyal to. And, and so it was a lot of educating ourselves and a lot of educating our students and our, our parents, quite frankly, mm-hmm. around why we're doing this. Um, it's really hard to argue against learner-centered practice, like helping sure. learners understand who they are, who are their strengths, what are your needs, um, what are your areas for growth, because we all have them. Yeah, and there's an age-old added of like, when am I ever going to use this? Right. That, if you're fostering those skills, the answer is always. Right. Well, and I think, you know, it's funny because you get into conversations with people around personalized learning and they say, well, it can't be all interest-based. It can't be, like, my entire day can't be around Legos because my kid loves Legos. And I get that. But how about we talk about relevance? Like, I think as adults or students, we want relevance. Like, help these kids find relevance in whatever it is that that Mm -hmm. we're bringing to the table and offering them that day. Or, um, And I think that that can go a long way. I think going back to what you said about just helping them realize why this is an approach worth taking, you know, why why we're putting them in the driver's seat and mm-hmm. what they're going to what they're going to gain from it. They're ready for the content because that's what's been spewed at them for many 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 years. Um, you know, you're walking into my math class, you're going to learn math today. I'm going to dictate the math that you are going to mm-hmm. learn and you are going to prove to me that you've learned it. Whereas sure that's extremely important in that learning and those outcomes and standards are crucial, but what I also want you to develop is yourself as a human being and yourself yeah. as a learner. And what does that mean in order for you to be successful? And it doesn't matter if you are 10 years old or 5 years old, our kids still need that skill. One thing that I reflected on as a classroom teacher and now going out and supporting teachers is that we pride ourselves on having examples for certain things. I just sat down at my son's parent-teacher conference and his teacher can tell me Cole needs to work on his addition facts. And I, being a former elementary teacher and sitting across the table from uh, you know his teacher, we can come up with four, five, six different ways to practice those math facts. Right. And that's amazing and incredible and wonderful. My next question was, I also know that Cole struggles with taking initiative at times. Mm -hmm. I also know that Cole struggles with setting a goal that is worthwhile. And as teachers, myself, I didn't have strategies for that, those skills. Sure. You know, yet I think it's really important that we're developing those skills alongside the learning outcomes. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the work, in my opinion, of learner-centered practice is helping develop learning experiences that really bridge both. How are we developing the learner alongside the learning? Because I am not negating that the learning isn't important. It absolutely is. Mm -hmm. I want to know what reading level my son is at. I want to know that he knows his basic facts. But I also know that if he isn't encouraged and pushed, he's probably going to function in his comfort zone for a long, long time for whatever reason. It's Mm -hmm. just his personality, but that's a skill that he needs to support. And so, you know, I think about all of these other foundational skills or learner skills that our kids need to develop um, really to be successful in life. And that's, I think, a lot of the work that we were trying to develop because they might go to a middle school classroom and it's very traditional. Sure. You know, they, they could have left our classroom you know, and team togetherness after two years, and they're going back to sitting in rows. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we liked to think that when they left us, maybe they're going to a traditional setting, but we've instilled within them 
uh, the ability to advocate for themselves, the ability to seek out um, resources, the ability to understand who they are and how they learn best, and, and maybe that means I need to go to my teacher and ask for X, Y, or Z. So, oh, Absolutely. In the midst of that, too, as, as we both support teachers, one of the things I think that sometimes educators get mired in is that choice is personalized learning. Mm-hmm. And, and it is a critical, I think, it's really difficult, I think, to take ownership of anything if you don't have a choice, right? So For sure. So to say that it's not like a major component uh, would not be true, but when you talk about what, that why, right, that the agency piece is the why for the learner, it's the why for the educator in terms of what, why are we doing this as a practice, what's to also foster that, uh, and that is the thing that can, as you're saying there, like transcend this immediate experience, regardless of whether you go on to another personalized learning thing or, or not in the next part of your education. I also think that we need to figure out a variety of different ways because choice can take a, a whole different turn within a classroom. And mm-hmm. it might be offering three choices to students. It might be, you know, supporting learners as they're developing choices within. And so it's, but we have teachers on complete both ends of the spectrum and so it's helping them sort of find that level playing field of where their entry point would be mm-hmm. um, I to think personalize it for the teacher obviously. right well I mean, and on, you know is. when I think about that honeycomb model right those thir- four layers it's beautifully laid out but it's overwhelming mm-hmm. and so a lot of what I did in the classroom and what we do at the Institute is helping teachers find that entry point like, what on here are you already doing? Mm-hmm. And, you know, and you look at our orange layer, which is a, a sort of our learning and teaching elements. These are best practices that teachers have been doing within their classrooms for years. Sure. I used personal learning goals with my students. I did conferring and conferencing with my students. I brought in learner choice. I brought in learner voice. Curiosity-driven learning is on there. The whole idea behind Genius Hour and 20% time in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Like All of these are practices that our educators today are extremely familiar with. So A, helping them find that entry point to say, okay, mm-hmm. you've done personal learning goals with students. And then helping them sort of create this continuum of when you were working with your students to set goals. Who was setting the goals? Yes. Because because the way you were just explaining it, I just want to capitalize on this. You said, because I had done this in the past. Because I had constructed it. me. I'm the same way. So, I'm, yeah. I, 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 every time I talk to teachers, I'm like, I'm not pointing the finger at you. I'm pointing exactly. the finger at me. <laughs> I did this for 13 for... years. Exactly. Right? I exactly. did this for, I set the goals. Yeah. And I analyzed their go- pre-assessments. Yes. Yep. I circled the ones that they needed to work on, mm-hmm. and I did that, and the kids played the game very well. They took them back, and I recently read this article by A.J. Giuliani, so I can't take credit for this, uh, called The Game of School versus The Game of Life, and he said it very well in there that he said, you know, our kids are playing the game of school, and the number one rule is you make the grown-ups at school happy, the grown-ups at home are happy. I was like, whoa, you know, it's sort of true. Yeah. As a student that hit home as a teacher. But man, I sat across from many parents at parent-teacher conferences and that was the case. As a parent, that's true. When the mm-hmm. teacher's upset because Cole did something wrong, I'm like, sure. what is going on? You know, it's, you're quick to judge there. But I think that part of it is, first of all, there's a lot of models out there for, for learner-centered practice. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously I work for the Institute, so I'm functioning off of the Honeycomb model. But when you think about one of those elements, and I'll, I'll use learning goals because that was the one I was just sharing. I set those personal learning goals for all 25 of my kids. 
And I conferred with them. And I conferenced with them around those learning goals, and I did all of that work. And so as I started to grow in my own practice, it was how can we take what you're doing and just baby step you towards it becoming more learner-driven. And yours, yeah, and owning it. You know, and how can, and, and not every student's going to get all the way to the end where they can set those goals for themselves. That's going to depend on age. That's going to depend on their own capacity within themselves. And they don't need to. It's they, just about moving the needle. Right. Right. And so, and that's, you know, that's where we talk about it's not just about getting all the way over to learner-driven. You have to, you, we ebb and flow back and forth within this, you know, this world of educator-driven to learner-driven because we are still a really important entity in the class. Classroom. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that was a huge misconception of mine, maybe when I went into this work, was, you know, personalized learning is not a technology initiative, in my perspective. Technology in our classroom played a role, uh, but when we wrote our, you know, uncommittee grant and asked for things, we asked for one-to-one devices. I'm not going to lie, but when we prioritized, it was not our number one priority. Our number one priority was a space large enough where 50 learners could come together as a community of beings to learn from each other. Mm-hmm. And it... Um, oh, that's beautifully said. <laughs> what? 52 beings come together to, like, yeah, it just sounds... You know, it Who was... Who doesn't want to be a part of something like that? Right, and it was super fun. The kids also realized that we were learning from each other. Angela and I were learning from one another constantly. The other thing that's really interesting is when you talk about your why and you talk about education and why we've become teachers, you know, for me, I didn't become a teacher because I loved school. I really didn't like school at all. I, I didn't play the game well. When you talk about school being a game, I was horrible at that game. Yeah. Horrible See, at I, the game. Grades-wise, I was solid. Oh, I was horrible. But I got a U on my report card for behavior you. every See? time. Not, not like a, not the in-between, like, sometimes he's on, like, your desk is up by me. Yeah, you know, I know. Front. My mom oh. used to say, well, you can put her next to anyone. She's still going to talk. <laughs> right? Like, it's not just a matter of sitting next to her Same. friend. She'll talk to anybody. Yeah, that's, that's And so was. it was really mm-hmm. hard for me because, you know, when you talk about your lifeline of your own educational experience, right? Good, bad, and ugly. Now, my dear, sweet work wife, Angela, her lifeline for her educational experience was like model. She knew she wanted to be a teacher from probably the day she was born. She probably, you know was printing out worksheets and playing school with her stuffed <laughs> animals, little, right? Yeah. From the time she's little. That is not me. Mm-hmm. Not me. I wanted educate Like, education became a priority for me because I did not have a fantastic educational experience. And so I can see this lifeline of my own experience in the classroom and how that got me to where I am professionally. Mm-hmm. And then I think about, like, my professional lifeline and how that overlays that personal lifeline. And then I think about the students in my classroom and that every single one of them also has an educational lifeline. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to be the person, the adult in their world that made school like amazing and that made school fun. And knowing that every one of them is probably not the, you know, the brightest star, um, but they're, but they are all special snowflakes. Every single one of them. You know, mm-hmm. not just our, our gifted and talented that made that magical number on their test score. Sure. Every one of them is. And so it was really just helping those kids determine their needs and, and their strengths and, and outlining for them mine. You know, that I have faults and I'm owning them and sort of helping them, you know, realize that we're just humans alongside them and that their voice in our classroom matters. Mm-hmm. So. so to kind of synthesize some of this too then, 
we have said already that like the why is really that agency piece and that like individually and I, I don't know who would disagree with that right like wanting to create a learning experience within your classroom that is everything you just articulated mm -hmm. right that uh, can mean that to the individual in a positive sense uh, in the role that you are in now uh, how many conversations do you get to be in or how would you sort of quantify I guess the influence or potential that you have as you're traveling all over and talking with teachers and doing some of this brainstorming work? It's humbling. It's very humbling work. And I think when we were in the classroom, we opened up our doors to visitors. Terrifying experience for me, primarily because I didn't have within me early on the confidence to think that anything I was doing within my classroom was worthy of anybody watching, mm -hmm. um, which was a me issue. I can own that. Um, I was never the teacher that wanted the principal to watch me. I did not like being on evaluation. I did not like being observed, right? Nobody really does. But <laughs> that's, that's I mean, probably fair. Yeah. Right? That's a fair statement. But what I started to realize, um, and honestly what my students taught me, was that this is a journey and that if I can't show vulnerability, in front of them and for me it was very vulnerable to open doors and invite visitors in and I was honest with my students about that sometimes to the point where I'd say if you really want to know what's happening in our classroom go talk to our students right and initially that was mm -hmm. like okay I'm taking that ownership off of me and let's just there put it go. on the kids I, well right? actually, this is a new revelation for me because we had a district in from Chicago not too long ago and it was the first time that I had said to them as groups come in to observe it can be underwhelming sometimes yes because the educator is maybe not at the front at all nope and he's answering questions and yeah. is maybe leading a small group for a time or for a couple like small groups right and, and they leave going well what is this but you have to talk to the students ask right. them what they're doing and and where they are in the process and what their goals are and what technology and pieces they're using to pursue those things for sure and watch them collaborate and that was the first time we said that and then actually had some students lead like like pulled them out essentially and then had them talk to the adults about this work and uh Oh, it's powerful. It, it's mind-blowing. And then, and that's when educators realize the true benefit behind learner-centered practice because then they see the learning that can't be articulated on a test score. Mm -hmm. When a child can communicate what it is they're doing and why they're doing it in their classroom and how this is benefiting them as a person is remarkable. When we opened our doors and invited people in, um, although it was intimidating, it, it got easier. Number one, it got easier. Mm -hmm. It got really, really fun. As a classroom teacher, you don't have a ton of time to talk to people when they're walking through, sure. right? We do a lot of site visits and field experience at the Institute for Personalized Learning, and, and we have amazing partnerships in, in school districts nearby that open their classroom doors. Um, but one of the things we always hear is, like, we want to talk to the teachers, and we have to remind them, yeah, but the teachers are working. They're like, teaching. They're teaching. <laughs> yeah. And so um, what we would always do is invite teachers to reach out to us, email us. Through those connections and through those conversations, the Institute also put out expert office hours. They called them expert office hours, which would just invite the visitors to come back afterwards, and they would invite the teachers to come and just do kind of a, a Q&A talk back. Almost like a debrief. Yeah, what, what did you and... experience and, you know, what what's resonating with you and what are you still, you know, grappling with? What are you struggling with? And through those conversations is where I really started to realize man, you know, I'm making an incredible impact on the 50 kids in my classroom. And that impact is huge, and it's amazing. Mm -hmm. But when I thought about myself professionally, 
somewhat selfishly, I thought, what other kind of impact can I make? Yeah. Um, and that's where I started to look at the instructional coach opportunity. I don't even know if I would call it selfish. Well, I don't even know if I would call it selfish so much as I would say that it's a you feel a, almost a responsibility. Maybe I, yeah, that's okay. That okay. Or maybe that's just my like. I, I like that better. Okay. I mean, responsibility sits better than selfishly. But I, I was ready for yeah. something professionally. I'm not going to lie. Mm-hmm. I couldn't, you know, I joke with Angela. I couldn't be a principal. Like, I, I, I will never say never to anything, right? But I don't see myself in the principal role. I just don't. And right. I never have. And there's not, that's nothing to, bad about principals. We need them. They're amazing. Um, and, and Angela is so good at what she, she does. But that wasn't something I aspired to. Mm-hmm. And so, and it's probably because of my own educational journey, like, it's, well, what do you aspire to do? Like, what are, what is your next step? And not that I couldn't have stayed in the classroom for my entire educational career, but I knew how amazing it was to, you know, saddle up next to a teacher and talk about, like, what are you doing? What could be your entry point? And I feel like for, for me right now in my role as a professional development specialist, we go out, we do a lot on, you know, our leadership design academies, and we do a lot within our institute studies cohorts, which is really, you know, helping them find an entry point within our honeycomb model, benchmarking, creating action steps to sort of bring that to fruition or bring that to life in your classroom. But probably the best part about my job is developing relationships. You know, I mean, you mentioned at the beginning of this uh, podcast about how you and I just met truly in this lobby. Yeah. Just you know, hey, how you doing? I'm Kate. Hey, I'm Andrew. Oh, I'm from Milwaukee. You know, I'm yeah. from Milwaukee. And it's this position has really allowed me to continue to grow that sort of networking mm-hmm. and that sort of relationship. I joke about Twitter and how anyone that's not on Twitter should just get on Twitter because it Absolutely. just helps you develop your, you know, professional learning network. And it's funny, I mean, this is probably, what, the third time I've ever seen you in person. Maybe it's been more than that. But I (laughs) I feel like I know who you are and I know the work that you do and, you know, probably better than colleagues that were down the hall from me in Mm -hmm. my school for 17 years. Yeah. And so I think that for me in, in my current job, you want me to quantify it? I can't tell you. I mean, the Institute is out of CESA 1. CESA 1 supports 45 school districts within southeastern Wisconsin. The work that we do has grown outside of those 45 districts. Initially, it was sort of started within there, but we've grown across the entire state of Wisconsin. And then we also have regional pockets that are picking up all over the place. Yeah, you can see that in the last few days. Yeah. I mean, there were educators in from as far away as Oregon and the East Coast. Yeah, and so I think we had 14 states represented here at the convening conference this year, which is remarkable. It's an amazing tribute to this movement Mm -hmm. and to this transformational change that really we need in education today. And so when we talk about, you know, we have a huge pocket of districts up in Minnesota doing incredible things. I've spent some time down in Fayetteville, Arkansas with friends down there in Kentucky and we had groups in from Pennsylvania, you know, and it's just amazing to be able to network and to build those relationships across regions because Mm -hmm. there's incredible work happening around learner-centered practice everywhere. And to get back to what you kind of said earlier too, and it's it's about the how, and, and we are collectively developing that just in the way that we talked about, like grassroots, yeah, for sure, over time, 
yeah. uh, and through a lot of conversations. And so to kind of maybe end on a practical note. So in your role as you meet with a teacher, I don't even know how I would an- answer this. And oh, I do great. similar work. So I'm going to put you on the spot with this question. Oh, but what would you say to the person starting out who maybe has some familiarity with elements and at least personalized learning as a, as a movement, but then like step one in class, like where, where am I going to begin? Definitely being grounded in your why, like we've heard that For today, sure. And trying to make things kind of learner-centered. Well, I think a lot of classroom teachers, and I'm speaking from myself because I was that type A teacher in the classroom, I think you have to do some, for starters, some personal reflection around what is that entry point going to be for you and at what level of control are you willing to relinquish? Mm-hmm. And you have to start small because otherwise it's going to become a free-for-all and that's not good for anybody. Sure. The other thing you need to do is most likely if you are a classroom teacher, maybe that's at convening and things are running through your brain right now or there, you know, you heard something that's resonating with you and you're going back to your classroom tomorrow. I think that there's tiny little small changes you can make. And sometimes it's just a matter of like, let's push all of our desks aside and let's just sit in a circle and let's just have a conversation around my learning experience. You know, so I remember when I did my first site visit at the Institute and I walked into a space that was phenomenal and so overwhelming. And I left there initially thinking, I can't do this. There's no way I could do that. Mm -hmm. And then I sort of got back in my car and thought, Kate, you know, how about a growth mindset, right? Like, what can you take away from? And the very next day I was in a classroom with 32 kids. We moved all the desks to the outside of our space and we all sat down in a circle And I said, you guys, yesterday I was gone all day. I was at this, you know, I was on site visits and I was in other classrooms. I need to talk to you about what I saw. And they were fascinated. A, that I cared enough to share with them as kids my learning experience. And I shared probably five or six different things that I thought were pretty amazing. And I said, so do you think we could do any of these things? And they're like, well, for sure. And all of a sudden, I said, tell me more. Like, what do, what do you think is pretty cool? And one of the things that I had seen at the Flight Academy um, in Waukesha was this whole idea of student-led seminars, which I, I kept thinking, wow, are my kids, could my kids ever get to that? Like, could my kids ever do that? I don't know. And my kids that day, I said, people signed up for seminars. And the topic was of your interest. And you were the expert in this area. And the kids are like, we can do that, Somerville. We can totally do that. And I'm like, well, how are we going to do that? And they're like, we've got this. So they set up a whiteboard and they put up expert talk. It's, it became this wonder wall. And then it was like all of a sudden they sort of did it. You know, so one of the things is just going back and talking to your kids about your learning experience. There were 400 people at this conference, many of which were classroom teachers. Hopefully you took away one nugget, mm-hmm. something. Turn around tomorrow, go back and talk to your kids about this learning experience for you and just how that can sort of transform because all of a sudden their voice comes out and they know you care and they know that you're passionate about the learning as well. And so I think, I don't know, did I answer the question? Yeah, absolutely. And and I think it sort of even doubled back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier, which is great to kind of be cyclical in in ending on that, is that that idea of clearly articulating the purpose Mm -hmm. so that they can be on board. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then how that then influences voice and the way in which they go about leveraging that through the choices that are that are afforded them. And maybe I'm sort of fitting it back to that previous conversation, but I heard pieces of that in your response there too. So any, any parting comments to kind of say? Ah, you know, this was really fun. 
Yeah, I like sitting down. And having I, I'm going to admit to the audience that I was really anxious about having to do <laughs> I this. Tell in the last couple of times. I'm and like, so, primarily because I'm never one to be interviewed, but this was very much a conversation. So this was extremely enjoyable. I think that anyone that's really looking to to get started in the work, there are so many people out there doing this that we don't even realize it. Mm-hmm. You can reach out to me. You can find me on our website, Kate Somerville. I love you know just talking shop and having conversations sort of off the cuff around what we do and why we do it, you know, and if anything, you know, just have a conversation with your students about what do you hope to gain from this year. Have a conversation with your parents, like what is what is a skill you really want your child to develop this year? Mm-hmm. Some of them will say to become a better reader. Some of them will say, you know, to be a stronger writer or, or to, be, to be more, things. right, to be more organized. But, you know, I think a lot of them, it, when steered in the, in the right direction, will really say, you know, I need my child to have the ability to empathize with others. I want my child to be kind. I want my child to be able to communicate in a variety of ways. I want my child to be able to advocate for themselves. I used to talk to my students about like enough bobbleheads. I don't want any more bobbleheads yeah. like this. You got, you know, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. And everyone's bobbling their head. Yes. I'm like, you don't know. I have a clue what I'm talking about. <laughs> and so stop doing that. Yeah. You know, and as adults, we need to stop doing that as well. Like if there's pushback or if there's question, like say it. And so I think helping kids feel that you're not just about content that you're about developing them as a, as a human being mm-hmm. and as a person, I think would be um, probably the most important skill. You know, how can you create an experience that brings your standards into play because they're important? Sure. But We're also develops, you're yeah, right. It's not just all about Legos. <laughs> Absolutely not, right? But also brings into play the other skills that they need in order to be successful and to drive their own learning wherever they're going. Well. If you want to hear more from Kate, you could either contact her and, or you could also stop by May 29th and 30th to the Westside Community School District for our Westside Personalized Summit, because Kate's going to be joining us there to lead a couple sessions and uh, just contribute to the great learning that will go on there also. And I'm sure you can check out the 10th Personalized Summit yes. convening in, in about a year from in now. In about a year, <laughs> yep. You can check out our website, uh, the Institute for pl.org. If you have questions about the Honeycomb Model, I'd love to have conversations. You want to talk about entry points. We call them constellations. Mm -hmm. So what is your constellation? Where are you going to start? And that can be as small as one element. It could be as large as five or six elements. But we always say, you know, start small. One baby step. Sure. One step towards learner-centered practice. Well, Kate, this has been a fun conversation. I've also enjoyed it as well. Yeah. So thank you for your time. Absolutely. uh, I'll have to have you back uh, again. For sure. Thanks, Andrew. Well, that's a wrap on another great episode. For more information or to contact us directly, you can email our team at personalized.learning at westside66.net. As always, thanks for tuning in and learning from the Westside Personalized Podcast.